reading is on page 1083 of the Pew Bibles. It's John chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. Page 1083. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in, in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Shall I pray for us for a moment? Dear Lord, I pray that, um, that you would help us today. You spoke these words to the disciples all those years ago. I pray that you would help us to learn from them uh, what you are teaching. We ask that in your name. Amen. Amen. So today we start a new series in the evening services, uh, looking at the metaphors that used in the Bible uh, to describe or illustrate what the church is meant to be like. Um, over the next few weeks we are looking at four such metaphors and the passages that describe them. And that seems a very good idea to me, because if you were to ask people uh, what they thought the church was meant to be like, um, apart from maybe getting a few rude answers, then you would no doubt find that many people, or not many people, would actually answer anything that would bear resemblance to what Jesus puts here. And, uh, and to be fair, perhaps not bear anything a resemblance to whatever the Bible says about the church. For down through the history, the church has made a habit of wandering away from the Bible's principle for, or pattern for the church. So, we're looking at a metaphor for the church. If you've got uh, your service sheet, it should at the back be those headings. It's not exactly very uh, um, detailed, but uh, you know, if you're wanting to concentrate, that might help. So this is the first, a metaphor the church. A metaphor is apparently a thing regarded as representative or symbolic of something else. Now metaphors can become very confused, mixed and muddled. I was uh, listening to the radio in the car and a guy came on um, the radio and sang uh, this. This mountain I must climb feels like the world upon my shoulders. What? Um, sort of a mixed metaphor um, it's obviously going to be difficult whatever he's trying to do but you don't learn much else thankfully the metaphor uh, that Jesus 
uh, uses um, and describes is much clearer. But it does raise a few questions and challenges for us. The church as a vine. Now, the Bible uses, Jesus uses many uh, agricultural symbols uh, to explain things uh, like uh, scattering the seeds, the harvest, um, being a shepherd. And he uses a vine along with those, like workers in the vineyard, the parable of, the vineyard owner. Now, people in those days would have been very familiar with these symbols, with these pictures and what they're related to. We, perhaps, not so much. We don't know so much about a vineyard. Maybe we do like to drink a glass of wine or eat some grapes. But for the Jewish people in Jesus' time, there was a lot more than the fact that they would have been familiar with the vine. Because the Bible speaks of a vine as a symbol for Israel itself, for the whole Jewish nation. And they would see themselves, actually, as a vine. Psalm 80, in verse 8, talks about how God brought a vine out of Egypt, cleared the nations, cleared the ground, and planted the vine. That's Psalm 80. Then in Isaiah 5, verse 7, says, The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. In the temple at that time, um, there was a decoration of a golden vine over the door to the holy place, the sanctuary. They had a vine, and it was a symbol of the life of Israel. But all the references to uh, the vine and to Israel point out that Israel has failed to be a good vine. So the verse we just read from in Isaiah goes on to say, And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Earlier, he says, Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. So from this background, this imagery, Jesus speaks about how the disciples, how his followers, his church, should be a vine. So that's um, the second heading. A picture of a vine, since uh, you, you may not have seen one before. So that's a vine. Jesus says, verse 1, I am the true vine. So understanding that background about the Jewish nation, then you perhaps could see why he used the term, the true vine. Israel had failed to bring forth the fruit that God might expect. But through Jesus, the true vine, this would now be possible. And branches not belonging to the house of Israel would be grafted on to this vine. But there is more in those five words, I am the true vine, uh, than just that. In verse 5, you note, he repeats the assertion, I am the vine, you are the branches. What is perhaps significant here is what Jesus does not say to the disciples. He doesn't say, you are the vine. He doesn't say, all those who will believe in, because of your testimony are the vine. He doesn't say, we are the vine. He says, I am the vine. Not I am the stem or the root of the vine, but he is the vine. We only exist as a church if we are in him. And if we are in Christ, connected to him, in him, he is our very spiritual life. 
So this is not like a sister company or a satellite organization that you set off on its own and uh, then it makes its own way in the world with maybe a little guidance. It has to be one with him. To speak of the church as if somehow it's a separate entity doesn't fit with this passage. He is the vine. We are the church in as far as we are connected to him. So this brings a number of important implications as we look at it. It means that the true church, those who are in Christ, together they are a living thing. Just as the vine is. You cannot call it then an organization or an institution. There's something much deeper and more profound than simply saying we are members as if we were somehow a club of like-minded people with similar interests. People who like being religious. The church has, should have, a life flowing through it which is not organic but is a spiritual life. I found this a difficult uh, concept to describe but we will see the same truth as it explained in the other metaphors the Bible uses. For example, where it says we are the body of Christ. Now if you were to describe me, and I dread to think what you would say, but if you were to describe me, you might in a scientific say, sense say I'm a collection of atoms, which were in themselves electrons and protons. You could scientifically describe the parts that make up a person, but a human being is so much more than what you could describe like that. So it is with the church. It is then more than the sum of its parts. It has a life within it that you cannot quite explain. So not just a group of individuals then, but a people who are connected, who are one in Christ, as the Bible puts it. So that then leads to the third of my headings. We are the branches. If this is the case, then, that we are the branches, part of the church, are members of something that is living, and only so because we are connected to him, then it begins to explain why Jesus would say we have to remain in him. Actually, the word remain is used eight times in eight verses. Remain in me, remain in me. He keeps on and on again about it. Now I have to confess to you that I'm actually not very fond of repetition generally. It sort of just presses my button somehow. Went into a Shell garage and uh, walked over to the pump and it said, Welcome to Shell. Oh, thank you. I grabbed the hose. Welcome to Shell. <laughs> Went to the car. Welcome to Shell. And it continued to do that through the whole of my stay until it's sort of driving around the twist. But in certain cases, repetition is a good thing. The actor, Anthony Hopkins, said that if you read your lines a hundred times, you will know them. So repetition can be good. And Jesus here is trying to get our attention so that we can register something that is extremely important. If we are to be living branches in this vine, if we are to stay spiritually alive, then we must remain in him. He uses a number of other phrases to stress that point. In verse 4, you cannot bear fruit by yourself. Verse 5, apart from him, you can do nothing. Verse 6, if you do not remain in him, then you will be like a branch 
that is thrown away and withers. Verse 7, your prayers can only be in line with his will if you remain in him. So if you picture a branch of a vine or any living plant vegetation, it has to stay connected to the main plant. In my garden I have this tree which has ivy growing right up it to the top, smothered in ivy. And so we've got to ring, that's what they term it, around the trunk you have to cut away uh, about that much of ivy all the way around. And so the ivy in the, up the tree will look for quite a time as if it's okay. But in fact it's dying. And if we do not remain in Christ, we will die spiritually. Paul puts it in Galatians like this. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. So here are uh, some more implications. A passage is then saying that it is possible not to remain in him, to become disconnected to him. Now, of course, that may beg the question of whether a person was ever in him in the first place, but it's clear, and Jesus is saying, stressing here, that we have a choice. Remaining in him is not automatic. We will need to apply ourselves to this, or in years to come, we will end up wondering where our faith went, wondering why we are feeling so lost and hopeless. Perhaps the big question, though, for us now, is what does that mean exactly, to remain in him? What does he mean? There is, of course, something that is a mystery about that. So in chapter 14, which comes before the one we've just read, um, Jesus comforts his disciples, one of the famous passages, about his having to leave them. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he says to them. He's going to the Father, he's going to prepare a place for them. And he explains that if he does that, then, verse 15 onwards, the Father will send the Holy Spirit to them. Verse 23 of that chapter. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. So the life that is in us is not from us or subject to our control. So we cannot say that if we do these things, if we say these special words, that we will remain in him. No more than we can say that we can receive the Holy Spirit by doing special things. We'll become a Christian. We simply seek, seek him and ask. It is a heart thing. Romans 10, if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Is it a heart thing? It is about a relationship. So like any relationship, you have to stay in touch. Pray to him regularly. Seek him. Read what he has to say in the Bible. Talk to him about stuff. Don't give up meeting with other believers, even when they're annoying. Behave as if you are totally dependent on him, because the fact is, you are. True life in Christ is not just hearing the words and going through the motions. In life, you will lose touch with people. That happens. 
you will drop some relationships, I guess. Often that's not because you intended to, it just happens. Do not lose touch with Jesus, for in him is life. Now, this passage has another difficult um, phrase, uh, truth, uh, and it is that uh, Jesus says the branch, if you remain in him, in the vine, then you will be pruned. Now, that doesn't sound too comfortable to be pruned, and no more is it. But what Jesus means by that, we are helped to understand in verse 3 of the reading. Speaking to the disciples directly, after saying that each good branch must be pruned, he says, if you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, I don't know about you, but that felt uh, strange. felt like it's a verse that's been just dropped into that passage, like some sort of ecclesiastical typo or something. It does not seem to fit. Why suddenly use the term, you are already clean? What has that to do with pruning? But the point, the fact is, that it's actually very helpful. Because, first let me explain, at that time pruning and cleansing meant the same thing. By cutting out the dead wood, you are cleansing the vine, the branch. So what Jesus is saying is that he has spoken to the disciples over the years and they have been cleansed or pruned by what he has said. Every conversation and teaching they have experienced from him has begun to cut away the wrong thinking in them. Every answer and sometimes rebuke has begun to remove their proud self-sufficiency. Painful though it has sometimes been, they have been prepared. I believe as Christians we will experience the same thing in our lives if we listen to him. Our self-sufficiency, sometimes our unwillingness to draw spiritual strength from him can be changed into knowing that we are reliant upon him. He directs us, and sometimes that can be painful, can't it? To give up or change things that we so desperately want to hold on to. Sometimes in a talk like this one, uh, actually nearly always, you have to prune bits out because you really like this little phrase, but actually it's not going to actually help to actually achieve what you're trying to achieve. So in life, God, like a parent with a small child who wants to do something, can't see why they can't do something. The parents then have to stop them and teach them. But the child lets you know they don't like it. It hurts to be thwarted. So lastly, the fruit. As we look at this last point, I want you to note that in the passage, which begins at verse 1 and ends in verse 8, that it describes... The, 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 that God is the Father, he is the gardener. The God the Father is the gardener, he's the one who wants the fruit at the end. So he's in charge of the whole thing. It is he who does the pruning and guiding of this vine, his church. And the point in do, doing that is that we should produce fruit, fruit which in, Jesus intends to bring glory to the Father. 
So when I mean bring glory to him, not in the same way as we talk about the person wanting to take all the glory, but in a sense that all humankind, all heaven and earth, will know the truth, will give the glory and recognition to the one to whom it really belongs. So as we finish, let's consider what that fruit should be. So in verse 8, he's not looking for a bunch of grapes from us. Not looking for top marks in all the exams. I hope you did well in the exams if you took them, but that's not what God is looking for. Or any other mark of worldly success. But the things that show yourself to be Jesus' disciples. There's an often used phrase, but one that fits exactly here. If you were accused of being a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, would there be enough evidence to convict you? The disciples were brought before the Sanhedrin, the court, told not to talk about Jesus. And they said, what else can we do? And the Pharisees noted from how they spoke that they had been with Jesus. That's what God's looking for. To be a little bit more specific, you'd have to look at the verses that follow ours. That's verses 9 to 11. The fruits are love and obedience. And through those to know and exhibit a joy that only comes from him. Limited though I am, I've often seen in people here at St. Mary's a love and obedience and a joy that defies their circumstances but reflects their Lord. Verse 10, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. Love God, love one another. Live in obedience to him. Some of you will have been at John Ellison's funeral and you will have seen there testimony to a life that saw people have come to faith through his gentle ministry. His obedience in bearing witness to Jesus and to showing love. That is what the father is looking for. The gardener who is caring for this vine is looking to bring forth fruit that reveals his love and care. His glory to all mankind. I pray that you and I will bear such fruit unto his glory. Amen.